Chapter 10, Part 2 of 2 of the Guns of Bull Run, A Story of the Civil War's Eve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jonathan Brubaker. The Guns of Bull Run, a story of the Civil War's Eve, by Joseph A. Altscheller, Chapter Ten. Get to work, you sleepy heads," called Jarvis cheerfully. "Look what a fine world it is! Here's the river, all washed clean, and the land, all washed clean too. Stir yourselves. We're going to have hot food and coffee here on the boat." I'm dreaming now of Hallie, sweet Hallie, for the thought of her is one that never dies. She's sleeping in the valley, and the mockingbird is singing where she lies. Listen to the mockingbird singing o'er her grave. Listen to the mockingbird singing where the weeping willows wave. You sing melancholy songs, for one who is as cheerful as you are, Sam, said Harry. That's so. I like the weepy ones best, but they don't really make me feel sad, Harry. They just fill me with a, a kind of longing to reach out and grab something that always floats just before my hands. A sort of pleasant sadness, I'd call it. Ah, well, I yet remember when we gathered in the cotton side by side. T'was in the middle of September, and the mockingbird singing far and wide. Oh, listen to the mockingbird still singing o'er her grave. Oh, listen to the mockingbird still singing where the weeping willows wave. Now that ain't what you'd call a right merry song. But I've never felt better in my life than I did when I was singing it. Here you are, breakfast all ready. We'll eat and drink away. I'm anxious to see our mountains again. The boat soon reached a point where the lower banks ran for some time, and from the center of the stream they saw the noble country outspread before them, a vast mass of shimmering green. The rain had ceased entirely, but the whole earth was sweet and clean from its great bath. Leaves and grass had taken on a deeper tint, and the crisp air was keen with blooming odors. Although they had a considerable current to fight, they made good headway against it. Harry's practice with the oar was giving his muscles the same quality like steel wire which those of Jarvis and Ike had. So they went on for that day and others, and drew near to the hills. The eyes of Jarvis kindled when he saw the first dark green slopes massing themselves against the eastern horizon. The blue grass is mighty fine, and so is the pennyroyal, he said. And I ain't got nothing agin em. I admit their claims, before they make them. 
But my true love, it's the mountains and my mountain home. Maybe some night, Harry, when we tie up to the bank, we'll see a deer coming down to drink. What do you say to that? Harry's eyes kindled too. I say that I want the first shot. Jarvis laughed. True spirit, he said. Nobody will set up a claim against you, less it's that lunkhead, Ike, my nephew. Are you willing to let him have it, Ike? Ike grinned and nodded. The Kentucky narrowed, and the current grew yet stronger. But changing oftener at the oars, they still made good headway. The ranges, dark green on the lower slopes, but blue on the higher ridges beyond them, slowly came nearer. Late in the afternoon, they entered the hills, and when night came, they had left the lowlands several miles behind. They tied up to a great beach growing almost at the water's edge and made their camp on the ground. Harry's deer did not come that night, but it did on the following one. Then Jarvis and he, after supper, went about a mile up the stream, stalking the best drinking places, and they saw a fine buck come gingerly to the river. Harry was lucky enough to bring him down with the first shot, and an achievement that filled him with pride, and Jarvis soon skinned and dressed the animal, adding him to their larder. I don't shoot deer, except when I need them to eat, said Jarvis. And we do need this one. We'll broil strips of them over the coals in the morning. Don't your mouth water, Harry? It does. The strips proved the next day to be all that Jarvis had promised, and they continued their journey with renewed elasticity, fair weather keeping them company. Deeper and deeper they went into the mountains. The region had all the aspects of a complete wilderness. Now and then they saw smoke, which Jarvis said was rising from the chimneys of log cabins, and once or twice they saw cabins themselves in sheltered nooks, but nobody hailed them. The news of the war had spread here, of course, but Harry surmised that it had made the mountaineers cautious, suppressing their natural curiosity. He did not object at all to their reticence, as it made traveling easier for him. They were now rowing along a southerly fork of the Kentucky. Another deer had been killed, falling this time to the rifle of Jarvis, and one night they shot two wild turkeys. Jarvis and his nephew would arrive home full-handed in every respect, and his great tenor boomed out joyously over the stream, speeding away in echoes among the lofty peaks and ridges that had now turned from hills into real mountains. They towered far above the stream, and everywhere there were masses of the deepest and densest green. The primeval forest clothed the whole earth, and the war to which Harry was going seemed a faint 
and far thing. Traveling now became slow, because they always had a strong current to fight. Harry, at times, when the country was not too rough, left the boat and walked along the bank. He could go thus for miles without feeling any weariness. Naturally very strong, he did not realize how much his work at the oar was increasing his power. The thin, vital air of the mountains flowed through his lungs, and when Jarvis sang, as he did so often, he felt that he could lift up his feet and march as if to the beat of a drum. They left the fork of the Kentucky at last and rode up one of the deep and narrow mountain creeks. Peaks towered all about them, a half mile over their heads, covered from base to crest with unbroken forest. Sometimes the creek flowed between cliffs, and again it opened out into narrow valleys. In a two days' journey up its course, they had passed only two cabins. In ordinary water, we'd have stopped there, said Jarvis, at the second cabin. I know the man who lives in it, and he's to be trusted. We'd have left the boat and the things with him, and we'd have walked the rest of the way. But the creek is so high now that we can make at least twenty miles more and tie up at Bill Rudd's place. There's no going further on the water, because the creek takes a full fifteen feet there, and this boat is too heavy to be carried around it. They reached Rudd's place about dark. He was a hospitable mountaineer with a double-roomed log cabin, a wife, and two small children. He volunteered gladly to take care of the boat and its belongings, while Jarvis and the boys went on the next day to Jarvis's home about ten miles away. Rudd and his wife were full of questions. They were eager to hear of the great world which was represented to them by Frankfurt, and of the war in the lowlands concerning which they had heard vaguely. Rudd had been to Frankfurt once, and felt himself a traveler and a man of the world. He and his wife knew Jarvis and Ike well, and they glanced rather curiously at Harry. He's a-going across the mountains and down into Virginia on some business of his own, which I ain't inquired into much, said Jarvis. Harry slept in a house that night for the first time in days, and he did not like it. He awoke once with a feeling as if walls were pressing down upon him and he could not breathe. He arose, opened the door, and stood by it for a few minutes while the fresh air poured in. Jarvis awoke and chuckled. I know what's the matter with you, Harry, he said. After you've lived outdoors a long time, you feel penned up in houses. If it wasn't for rain and snow, I'd do without roofs, except in the winter. Leave the door wide open, and we'll both sleep better. Nothing, of course, or wake that lunkhead, Ike, my nephew. I guess you might fight the whole of 
Buena Vista right over his head, and if it was a sleeping time, he'd sleep right on. They left the next morning, taking with them all of Harry's baggage. Jarvis's boat would remain in the creek at this point, and he and Ike would return in due time for their own possessions. They followed a footpath now, but the walk was nothing to them. It was, in truth, a relief after so much traveling in the boat. My legs are long, and they need straightening, said Jarvis. The ten miles before us would just about take out the kinks. Jarvis was a bachelor, his house being kept by his widowed sister, Ike's mother, and old Aunt Suze. Now as they swung along in Indian file at a swift and easy gait, his joyous spirits bubbled forth anew. Lifting up his voice, he sang with such tremendous volume that every peak and ridge gave back an individual echo. I live for the good of my nation, and my sons are all growing low, but I hope that the next generation will resemble old Rosin the bow. I've traveled this country all over, and now to the next I will go, for I know that good quarters await me to welcome old Rosin the bow. I suppose you don't know how you got that song either, said Harry. No, it just wandered in, and I picked it up in parts, here and there. See that clump of laurel across the valley there, Harry? I killed a black bear in it once, the biggest seen in these parts in our times. And I can point you at least five spots in which I've killed deer. You can trap lots of small game all through here in the winter, and the furs bring good prices. Oh, the mountains ain't so bad. Look, see the smoke over that low ridge? A thin black line again the sky? It comes from the house of Samuel Jarvis Esquire. It ain't no bad place either. A double log house with downstairs and upstairs and a frame kitchen behind. It's fine to see it again, ain't it, Ike? Ike smiled and nodded. In another half hour, they crossed the low ridge and swung down into a beautiful little valley, a mile long and a quarter of a mile broad that opened out before them. The smoke still rose from the house, which they now saw clearly, standing among its trees. A brook, glinting with gold in the sunshine, flowed down into the middle of the valley. A luscious greenness covered the whole valley floor. No snugger nook could be found in the mountains. As fine as pie, exclaimed Jarvis exultantly. Everything straight and right. I, I think I see Jane, your mother, standing in the porch. I'll just give her a signal. He lifted up his voice and sang, Home, sweet home, with tremendous volume. He was heard as Harry saw a sunbonnet waved vigorously on the porch. The travelers 
descended rapidly, crossed the brook, and approached the house. A strong woman of middle years shouted joyously and came forward to meet them, leaving a little weazened figure crouched in a chair on the porch. Mrs. Simmons embraced her brother and son with enthusiasm and gave a hearty welcome to Harry, whom Jarvis introduced in the most glowing words. Then the three walked to the porch and the bent little figure in the chair. As they went up the steps together, old Aunt Suze suddenly straightened up and stood erect. A pair of extraordinary black eyes were blazing from her ancient, wrinkled face. Her hand rose in a kind of military salute and looked straight at Harry, but she exclaimed in a high-pitched but strong voice, Welcome, welcome, Governor, to our house. It's a long time since I've seen you, but I knew that you would come again. Why, what's the matter with Aunt Sue's? asked Jarvis anxiously. It is he, the governor. Governor where? she exclaimed. He, who was the great defender of the frontier against the Indians. But he looks like a boy again, yet I would have known him anywhere. The blazing eyes and tense voice of the old woman held Harry. She pointed with a withered forefinger which she held aloft, and he felt as if an electric current were passing from it to him. A chill ran down his back, and the hair lifted a little on his head. Jarvis and his nephew stood staring. Walk in, Governor, she said. This house is honored by your coming. Then, and all in a flash, Harry understood. The mind of the old woman, dreaming in the sun, had returned the far past, and she was seeing again with the eyes of her girlhood. I'm not Henry Ware, Aunt Susan, he said, but I'm proud to say that I'm his great-grandson. My name is Kenton, Harry Kenton. The wrinkled forefinger sank, but the light in her eyes did not die. Henry Ware, Henry Kenton, she murmured. The same blood, and the spirit is the same. It does not matter. Come into our house and rest after your long journey. Still erect, she stood on one side and pointed to the open door. Jarvis laughed, but it was a laugh of relief rather than amusement. She surely took you, Harry, for your great-grandfather, Henry Ware the mighty woodsman and engine fighter that later on became governor of the state. I guess you look as he did when he was near your age. I heard her tell tales about him by the mile. Aunt Suze, you know, is more than a hundred. She's got the double gift of looking forward and backward. Come on in, Harry. This house will belong to you now. And if at times she thinks you're the great governor or the boy, that Governor Ware was before he was governor. Just let her think it. With the wrinkled forefinger still pointing a welcome toward the open door, Harry went into the house. 
he spent two days in the hospitable home of Samuel Jarvis. He would have limited the time to a single day, because Richmond was calling to him very strongly now. But it was necessary to buy a good horse for the journey by land, and Jarvis would not let him start until he had the pick of the region. The first evening after their arrival, they sat on the porch of the mountain home. Ike's mother was with them, but old Aunt Suze had already gone to bed. Throughout the day, she had called Harry sometimes by his own name, and sometimes Governor, and she had shown a wonderful pride whenever he ran to help her, as he often did. The twilight was gone some time. The bright stars had sprung out in groups, and a noble moon was shining. A fine, misty silver light, like gauze, hung over the valley, tinting the high green heads of the near and friendly mountains, and giving a wonderful look of softness and freshness to this safe nook among the peaks and ridges. Harry did not wonder that Jarvis and Ike loved it. Aunt Suze, give me a big turn when she took you for the governor, said Jarvis to Harry. But it ain't so wonderful after all. Often, she sees the things of them early times a heap brighter and clearer than she sees the things of today. As I told you, she know Boone and Kenton and Logan and Henry Ware and all them grand hunters and fighters. She was in Lexington nigh unto eighty years ago when she saw Daniel Boone and the rest that lived through our awful defeat at the Blue Licks come back. It was not long after that her family came back into the mountains. Her dad allowed the people would soon be too thick round him down in that fine country. But they'd never crowd up nobody up here, and they ain't done it, neither. Did you ever hear her tell of Henry Ware's great friend, Paul Cotter? asked Harry. Surely, lots of times. She know Paul Cotter well. He wasn't as tall and strong as Henry Ware, but he was great in his way, too. It was him that started that big university at Lexington, and that became the greatest scholar this state ever knowed. I've heard that he learned to speak eight languages. Do you reckon it was true, Harry? Do you reckon that any man that ever lived could talk eight different ways? It was certainly true. The great Dr. Carter, and Dr. In his case, didn't mean a physician. It meant an M.A. and a Ph.D. and all sorts of learned things. Could not only speak eight languages, but he knew also so many other things that I've heard he could forget more in a day and not miss it than the ordinary man would learn in a lifetime. Jarvis whistled. He was surely a big scholar, he said but it agrees exactly with what old Sue says. Paul Carter was always hunting for books, and books was mighty scarce in the Kentucky woods then. Henry Ware and Paul Carter always lived near each other, resumed Harry. 
and in two cases their grandchildren intermarried. A boy of my own age, named Dick Mason, who is the great-grandson of Paul Cotter, is also my first cousin. Now that's interesting, and me, being of an inquiring mind, I'd like to ask you where this Dick Mason is. Harry waved his hand over his head toward the north. Up there somewhere, he said. You mean, that he's gone with the north? Took one side while you have took the other? Yes, that's it. We couldn't see alike. But we think as much as ever of each other. I met him in Frankfurt, where he had come from the northern camp in Gerard County. But I think he left for the east before I did. The northern forces hold the railways leading out of Kentucky, and he's probably in Washington now. Jarvis lighted his pipe and puffed a while in silence. At length, he drew the stem from his mouth, blew a ring of smoke upward, and said in a tone of conviction, It does beat the Dutch how things come about. Harry looked questioningly at him. I mean, you're arriving here, being who you are, and meeting old Aunt Sue's being who she is, and that cousin of yours, Dick Mason, didn't you say was his name? Being who he is, going off to the north. They sat on the porch, later than the custom of the mountaineers, and the beauty of the place deepened. The moon poured a vast flood of misty silver light over the little valley, hemmed in by its high mountains, and Harry was so affected by the silence and peace that he had no feeling of anger toward anybody, not even toward Bill Skelly, who had tried to kill him. End of chapter 10, part 2 of 2